what's up, Crypt Nation? Bryce Paul and the Notorious Pizza Mind coming at you per usual from the sunny and 70 San Diego. All right, so if you haven't heard yet, Pete's and I just finished writing a 290-page book called Crypto Revolution, Your Guide to the Future of Money. And we did this so that anyone anywhere in the world can learn about really how cryptocurrency and blockchain technology are putting the power back in the hands of the people. And really, we wrote this to equip the masses with the tools to profit from this revolution. So whether you invest in crypto or something else, the point is that you need to escape inflation, which is a hidden tax on your savings by investing in your future. And we think that crypto is really the hottest market, which has the most upside potential. And we are so confident that Crypto Revolution is the perfect starting point, whether you're the crypto curious or the seasoned investor just looking to learn about the world's newest asset class. All right. The best part is we're giving it away literally for free. Okay for free. All we ask is you pay for shipping uh, just to help offset the cost of the book. We're literally making zero dollars on this and are just doing it to give back to our amazing community of listeners. All right, so go to CryptoRevolution.com today and get your free copy. All right, good citizens of Crypt Nation, welcome back to another intense episode of Crypto 101. As you can tell, uh, it's Bryce here. Still a little under the weather, but recovering. This has been a hard start to the year, um, but in rare form, uh, in, in extremely impressive health, we have Pizza Mind. Pete, what's going on? Today, I'm wearing my favorite shirt, and that sets me apart from all other days when I don't. This shirt says, money grows on rigs and has a beautiful image of a graphics card. Always puts me in a great mood, and it's very apropos. It is very proper and uh that we have with us christy lee minahan otherwise known as oh god a girl who's here to talk to us about some bitcoin mining christy welcome to the show thank you for having me guys i'm also incredibly <laughs> jealous of your t-shirt right now as you should be <laughs> we, we we really love that shirt it's got a big gpu on it so, Christy, I'm sure you're very familiar with GPUs and ASICs and all that stuff. And we're going to, you know, Crypto 101 here, uh, we're not all super technical people. We're not all, you know, developers. So, you know, I will ask that you, you know, don't use too fancy of words. And if you do, go ahead and define them for you. But before we get, or define them for us, before we get into all that stuff, briefly tell us who you are. And, you know, you're, you're a Bitcoin OG. Like, what does that mean? And how did you get into crypto? And what was that early day like? I wouldn't say that I'm a, a Bitcoin OG, more of a mining OG. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so I got into cryptocurrency relatively young uh, when I turned 18. And I've pretty much made a career and um, a job out of crypto mining. Um, and the early, early days back in, you know, in 2009, there were maybe four or five major participants and they were all developers. They were people that were interested in what Bitcoin represented more in the economic side of things and the monetary policy. They were participants and contributors to the code base. And then slowly as they began to talk about the tech, other people joined in. And everyone would download a copy of the Bitcoin software and, you know, start mining and start talking. And it was a great way to just network and connect with people. Slowly, that community grew um, to about 100 unique individuals. And by the end of 20, um, 2011, you had quite a few people that were involved in mining Bitcoin. And back then, you were just mining first on your laptop or whatever CPU-based processor, you uh, CPU-based device you had. And then eventually someone came out with the first GPU miner and people gravitated towards that. And then eventually there were these FPGA miners. And so an FPGA uh, stands for Field Programmable Gate Array. You probably don't know or work with those unless you're in the research side of the ecosystem or unless you're working in data centers. FPGAs are commonly used by NASDAQ and um, some of the big tech companies for research and development. And um, a, back in the early days of mining, people were actually building these and contributing open source development, sharing designs and schematics. 
So it was really very much a grassroots community. Um, all the participants really just cared about how do we get people to learn about this Bitcoin thing? Like, we think there's something really awesome here. How do we go and learn more? Uh, sorry, spread the word about Bitcoin. What were some of the early attempts at spreading Bitcoin knowledge? And what were some people's reactions when you very, very first told them about cryptocurrency? I didn't start talking to people about cryptocurrency until about 2015, <laughs> because I thought the exact same thing as everyone else. This stuff is magical, magical internet money with no purpose. I was too young to understand a little bit about the economic reasoning behind Bitcoin. And Bitcoin mining for me and mining in general was very much like a video game. You're chasing a high score constantly and you're comparing high score to, you know, other people. But back then, you know, the early attempts were people would try and make applications, people would try and make exchanges, talk to journalists, try and get news articles out there, post on mailing lists, uh, chats, um, some podcasts. There was all of that content, but it was, you know, people just treated it as, oh, look, this is a very nice experiment. But we have Hashcash over here, which, you know, failed to get any sort of large-scale traction so it must be it's an attempt like hash cash oh we'll acknowledge it and then just move on i think it was in 2013 when the first big conferences started coming out that more and more people started paying attention and people were curious and a lot of that is influenced by the economic you know the ec economic churn that was happening in both america as well as some other countries you know, people were starting to think and realize, hang on, maybe a form of money does need to exist that isn't controlled by one party and isn't controlled by any country or government. Truly. I mean, I mean, so in the early days of crypto or in the early days of mining, I should say, I'll differentiate the two. Sounds like, you know, just to, if I'm hearing correctly, it was kind of like a, a cool game and it was for the geeks just to see how fast their computers could go and do all this mining but but now it seems like things have really taken a turn. So how would you how would you really define you know Bitcoin or crypto mining today? Is it enterprise? Is it you know institutionalized yet? Getting there. It started becoming enterprise in 2013 when the price jumped. Um, you know, as soon as we hit about a four hundred dollar Bitcoin price, people started taking mining very seriously. But it still hasn't fully matured. So to to label something as enterprise, that means you have to have well-structured businesses that are coming in and actually building out infrastructure, building a um, you know a business model that has Bitcoin as one of the pillars or mining as one of the pillars, but it isn't the sole pillar. And you know you have um, some large-scale executive players. We're starting to see that happen this year. There's um, my previous employer, Core Scientific. There's Layer One Capital. There is um, there's uh, Blockstream. Those three I've just named all are what I would call enterprise mining facilities. And what differentiates them is they're run like a you know like a public company, even if they're not public. They have dedicated data center teams infrastructure, their own software tools, DevOps teams, very large teams of people, a dedicated finance department, lawyers, um, contrast that with what a traditional mining operation looked like even two or three years ago. And it's usually just one or two people managing all of this themselves at scale and taking all the profits for themselves. And part of this surge around enterprise mining is the fact that Bitcoin has gotten, it's still profitable to mine Bitcoin, but it's not as profitable as it was two to three years ago. And that squeezes out a lot of other people that don't have the economies of scale to play with. One of the questions I had when I first got into mining is what are the pros and cons of solo mining versus joining a mining pool? Well, no one solo mines anymore. No one's done that since like 2010, probably 2009, actually. So in the context of Bitcoin, solo mining is if you have enough hash rate, um, you can go directly for the block reward yourself. Whereas in a pool, 
you're going to contribute your computing power, specifically shares. You're going to get paid according to the amount of shares you send to the pool. It only makes sense to run your own pool if you have a sizable amount of hardware. So about 5 to 10% of the Bitcoin networking hash, hash power. And you're set up to run your own infrastructure. And um, that's, you know, set up to run your own um, nodes, run your own networking interfaces, just really manage all of that yourself. Potentially, if you want to add, um, if you want to save, mining pools charge you a 1% fee. If you want to recoup that cost, that might be another reason. It can also be if you want a competitive edge. So in solo mining, there are, there used to be some tricks you could do with Bitcoin um, that would give you a 13% power savings. That was, uh, that was known as something called ASIC boost. That's now being widespread and commercialized. So it's no longer a, a trade secret. But um, that used to be one of the reasons people would start up their own mining pool as well. And there also may be accounting reasons. So if you want to, you know, your pool's um, output, which blocks you've mined, when, et cetera, stamped, recorded, and formatted in a certain way for your accountant or for your auditing firm, that's also another reason that I've seen. That's super interesting. So when you say you need to set up a, a mining operation of scale to get me you know, maybe 10% of the Bitcoin hash rate to solo mine these days. You're talking about warehouses the size of several football fields, right? Not we quite. can't just do this out of a garage anymore. Not quite. You know, I would say more like a big barn. You don't need that much space. Uh, as mining, with the new generation of miners, things are getting more compact every step of the way. Some farms in China have actually found out how to get these really high density solutions, which if you imagine for a moment a very large garbage bin, uh, no, not a garbage bin, um, a garbage container, um, an industrial dumpster, and it's just filled with oil and liquid, and there's tons and tons of ASIC boards inside, all, uh, all mining very neatly. Um, these high-dense solutions, these immersion containers, have started to be produced at scale. Some are really scrappy. Literally, it's a, it's a dumpster they're using. Some are much nicer. Um, some are hosted in shipping containers or there's custom-built containers. And these can usually let you get the power of 500 to 1,000 individual units in a very small form factor. So some of these things are coming into play. Because Bitcoin mining doesn't really need a lot of space. It's kind of wasted. And so people are looking on how can we build these high-density solutions so that we can stay with a very small um, a small building footprint and instead just put all of our uh, CapEx and OpEx into, you know, into the hardware itself and into the elect, uh, running costs. Fascinating. Yeah, uh, you know, are there I, – I heard – tell me if this is true or false – uh, Peter Thiel and Reid Hoffman. I mean, these are the guys from PayPal and you know LinkedIn mm -hmm. and all sorts of different stuff. They're getting involved in Bitcoin mining. Is that correct? Yep. yep. Okay. So Reid Hoffman is hosted with um, Blockstream, who I mentioned before. He's one of the people that have signed on to be the first customer. And then for Peter Thiel, he is a backer of Layer One. And so Layer One is differentiating in the mining space by number one, building a very big facility powered by both wind and solar in Texas. And number two, by building immersion cooled units. So just like I talked before, these custom built solutions that are designed to have many ASIC hash boards just in, in a tank. Very um, cool. Mm -hmm. Are there are there any other big names? Uh, I mean, those guys to me are household names as an entrepreneur. Are there any other you know quote unquote household names that you've you've run into? Maybe it's a Fortune 100 company or something that's getting into Bitcoin mining as well. I mean, the biggest one is um, Kevin Turner. His name he's CEO of Core Scientific. So for those who aren't aware, Kevin Turner was the chief operating officer of Microsoft for many years. Um, so he wow. recently joined, uh, he joined Core Scientific and um, transformed the business in a very good way. Um, I also, so I, I just read uh, the other day, I, I was writing something. Uh, we, we've got a group uh, called Crypt Nation. 
people subscribe to it. You could go to cryptorevolution.com. You could you could learn all about this stuff. But we were just talking about how uh, Eric Schmidt, who's one of the uh, co-founders of Google, is my he he said he's mining Ethereum with his son. I thought that was so cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's some big guys. Mining, oh yeah, definitely, it. definitely. And guys, if you haven't, uh, you know, there, there's more than just Bitcoin mining. A lot of people maybe are thinking, oh, there's just Bitcoin and there's just Ethereum, but there are, you know, thousands of different cryptos. And, you know, what's really the main motivation for a miner in today's, today's world? And is it purely profitability or do you think that there's, there's some other sort of um, motivation? No, not at all. And um this is what makes mining so fascinating because each individual coin has its own biome and its own psychology of miners. So you look at Bitcoin and you have it kind of split between participants that they're mining for profit or participants that are not necessarily making profit, but they are mining to either support Bitcoin, which further supports their other business incentives or they're doing it to um, actually earn the Bitcoin and then sell it out in other areas. So if we look at Fidelity Investments, why do they mine Bitcoin? Well, Fidelity Investments mines Bitcoin because number one, getting that brand new cryptocurrency that has no transaction history that can feed into their custodial wallet. And also number two, it gives them experience with the Bitcoin network and they have been big champions of Bitcoin since the very early days. You know, this is sort of their way of giving back to the Bitcoin network, learning more about it, being able to do research on it and understand it. You have some people that are building applications on their cryptocurrency network of choice. And so they have a mining farm to support that network. Um, that is the case of Bitcoin Cash as well as Bitcoin SV. You have Roger Ver and um, Calvin Iyer, who both have very large mining farms to protect and, you know, work for the Bitcoin network. And then for things like um, smaller coins, so coins that are more underground, you know, they might not have a very large market cap. Many of the miners in these, uh, for these aren't going to make a profit immediately, especially if a coin isn't on an exchange yet. So the miners are joining very early because they're either excited about the project, excited about the team, or because they believe there's a future in the coin. So they're getting in early, they're supporting the network, they're mining very quickly, and then they'll just wait and hold. And they'll often keep supporting and talking about the project through its lifetime. Um, and you see that a lot more so in the smaller coins like Zcoin, Zcash in the early days, um, Vertcoin, Lira, lots and lots of these uh, smaller cryptocurrencies. So it's very much um, what I like to call nomadic as well as tribalistic. Nomadic miners being the ones that chase profit, tribalistic being the ones that, you know, buy into the vision of a coin and go out and spread the word about the coin. Very well said. That makes a lot of sense. Is there a perceived danger or a real danger from a mining pool becoming too large? Uh, it depends on how you define danger. So obviously decentralization is the key aspect of this technology, right? I mean, you want your blockchain to be sufficiently decentralized. Otherwise, what is the point of the ledger in general? Um, supposedly, if you know a mining pool does have a majority of the hash rate, they can then use that hash rate to do malicious things to the blockchain. In reality, we haven't seen that for quite some time. Um, the space for Bitcoin, at least, has matured. And if someone did attack the network, um, they would be harming themselves. So if a big pool decided to, you know, be a malicious actor, it would actually harm themselves. You do see it a little with um, smaller coins. This is where the ecosystem isn't as mature and they're just chasing profit again. Um, so it's all about how do you define danger? If you believe that centralization is a real danger, then yes, that is a big risk, especially when you're trying to build you know, a world financial system. You do not want the keys to the kingdom to be sitting in one place. And that really is what the mining aspect of um, of Bitcoin is, as well as for other coins that use proof of work. 
eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform every year. And they're some of our good friends and they're a great sponsor. US customers can trade the most popular crypto assets and your fees are extremely transparent. So if you're not ready to trade yet, uh, you could also practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. They give you $100,000 of virtual money and you could start playing around with it and not have to risk any of your real money before you get comfortable with the markets. And best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world, kind of like a social network for trading, to discuss charts and all things crypto. So go ahead, create an account today at eToro.com slash crypto 101. That helps us, that helps you, that helps them, and makes everything possible here if you guys use that link. So guys, start building your portfolio the smart way eToro is crypto trading made easy. All right, back to the show. This is on, on the topic of proof of work, but it wasn't in uh, any of the outline that we sent you, but it was just something that kind of hit me as you were talking. Um, do you have like, basically people were talking about like how much energy it would take to, um, you know, brute force a SHA-256 private key. And they were like, there's not enough energy in the solar system or something to like do it in like a human lifetime. Do you have do you have any cool stats around how secure a Bitcoin private key is? And also uh, a secondary is like how much um, hash power is being directed to the Bitcoin network relative to like how much uh, compute power is existing on Earth? I, I mean, that's kind of silly. You can easily attack one hash. Um, to attack Bitcoin for one hour, it costs about 650k USD. <laughs> that's um, that's pretty cheap. There, yes, there's plenty of energy, but you have to understand that as soon as you attack the Bitcoin network, if you're at all invested into it, you've just harmed yourself, and you have to get away with that attack with no one else noticing and switching over their hash rate from things like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. Um, and that's just a theoretical attack. For listeners, they can go to crypto51.app um, to check out other coins. But it's actually relatively easy and cheap to pull off a um, one-hour attack. It's just yeah. that if you do if you do that attack, you're hurting yourself as well, and you only get one shot at this. So, and, and when people are attacking, right, that one-hour attack. What is that? Is that a block reorg? Is that like a double spend? It can be all of those. Um, usually in the ones we've seen before, sometimes it can be a reorg, which isn't necessarily attack. Reorgs often, orphan blocks often happen. Um, chain splits often happen in these new, new coin networks where there's just way too much hash rate and things have it settled down. Um, reorgs, we haven't seen a really malicious reorg in quite a while. So the theory is that you can do a reorg to change the history of the blockchain. So perhaps if you sent um, a large amount of money to um, Alice and now Bob wants it back, Bob could rewrite the blockchain. Um, but we haven't seen one of those. Uh, we saw one in the very early days of Bitcoin. We haven't seen one since then. And then um, you do have a 51% attack, which allows you to basically do whatever you want with the network. You can do withholding, which says I'm only going to accept money from the or pay out to these addresses or accept transactions from these addresses. And I'm going to um, ignore all of the other. Uh our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. 
What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, transactions that come through. You can withhold rewards from the miners. Um, you can inflate transaction fees artificially, where you just trade between your own wallets um, in order to get a much bigger payout. There's all sorts of uh, attacks you can do there. So it's a very wide bucket. But the Bitcoin network is actually quite resilient um, to a lot of those attacks now. That's really fascinating. I know this is our listeners' first time hearing about a lot of these things, uh, like a reorg um, and some of these other things like that. But it's good to know that mm -hmm. it hasn't happened in a long time, and it would be very, very difficult to now. Uh, I know I've seen that on smaller chains like uh, Electronium, I think is the last one I saw really, really get attacked and uh, really knocked offline for a couple of weeks while they tried to figure out how to get things back to normal. Um, but it is kind of cool that even something like that, where they were really unprepared, they were still able to get back on track and, uh, continue down the path. So even if there is an attack that does happen, you know, don't lose sleep over Bitcoin being attacked because like you mentioned, it is very resilient and it's been hardened over the years because of these attacks to the Bitcoin that we know and love now. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there is a reason why more and more people are putting their faith in the Bitcoin network. I mean, people are putting where their money where their mouth is, so to speak. What are some of the risks of mining these low cap coins versus the top 10? So number one, you may never get liquidity, which means your really low cap coin might never be on an exchange and you might never be able to actually cash out. Um, most of the lower cap coins or brand new coins are traded OTC, which means you're trading um, over the counter, you know, person to person, not through an exchange. That's all well and good if you've been doing it for a very long time. But if you're not familiar with um, who has a very good re reputation or you're not familiar with who's buying and who's selling, it can be a difficult thing to get into. Number two can be um, competing. So if you're a GPU miner, you might end up competing with FPGA hardware, which is 10, 100, or 1,000 times X better than what you can do as a GPU miner. And then there are no rewards left for you as an individual. And then I guess since we're, since I'm sitting in the US, there's also like tax reasons for mining these lower cap coins. Um, the IRS has just started defining how to tax Bitcoin. They're, they're, they are struggling with all of the myriad of altcoins. Um, so there may be unforeseen tax consequences, you know, at, down the road if you do cash out this cryptocurrency. Yeah, absolutely. That That's all a nightmare <laughs> for sure. Yep. <laughs> We're not tax advisors and we don't get too much into that. But, um, you know, Christy Lee, one of the really interesting things that happened, um, you know, I was kind of new to the space in 27 in the summer of 2017 there was a lot of talk about this user activated soft fork and i was like oh all these forks and then hard forks and oh my god what the heck and now there's bitcoin cash and so my head started to spin um but as i dove deeper and all that kind of stuff it, it all started to make sense but 
I guess the, the point I'm trying to ask here is what's the difference between a mining node and a non-mining validating node? <laughs> um, so in the, in the really early days of mining, there used to just be the software and it was your wallet, your node, and your mining software all in one. And then um, someone said, that's really stupid. I don't, I just want to mine crypto. I don't want to have to keep my wallet open all the time. So some developers came along and split that. So now you have individual unique pieces of software. You have your wallet, which is responsible for keeping a, if you have a light wallet, all it's going to do is um, allow you to send and receive money. If you have a full uh, wallet, full client, it's going to be both your wallet and your validation node. What, that, what that's going to do is grab a history of the blockchain, maintain that record, and uh, broadcast, relay it to other nodes that are cu currently listening. And anytime you know a block is sealed, it gets recorded to the chain and you verify there. And mining nodes, that's just really terminology to refer to the ASIC miners themselves. I've seen that terminology also used in reference to pools, but mostly it just means, you know, an actual physical piece of hardware. And so miners have separated it now where we call it the, the wallet, the node, and the ASIC. So that's sort of how we separate it so that there's no confusion. Are there rewards on the Bitcoin network for running just a validating node? No. Or is it just because you want to support the network? Just because you want to support the network. And that's kind of a um, big floor in the current system. If you don't have as many nodes as possible, you do open yourself up to a variety of censorship attacks. And right now we have... If all your nodes are clustered in one country, that's also bad. So there's no incentive uh -huh. to running a node. Um, and so people are playing with the idea now of, hang on, why don't we go back to how it was in olden times, where you know we combine the actual node with potentially the ASIC. So a little node would run on top of the Bitcoin ASIC. Or let's combine um, you know, the node with wallets again. Yeah, I think that would be that would be huge because you know even when I'm explaining to you know friends and family or something about like the difference between you know mining and running a full node, they're like, well, why would you run a full node? Like it doesn't make sense because there's no incentive. And so I think baking some sort of incentive into uh, a validating node would be huge because you know some of the the Bitcoin maximalists say that you know because they activated the soft fork for Segwit prior to the hard fork, then like, you know, the full nodes are really in control, but it, it kind of feels like miners are in control of the network and they have the final say. Would, would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, for, for proof of work networks. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, kind of transitioning away from, you know, proof of work and physical mining, there's now this whole new trend. Um, and I don't know, if you're hot or cold on it, but it's proof of stake and a lot of new coins are popping up. Uh, give us kind of the, the 101 on proof of stake and, and kind of like, why was this born? Mm -hmm. And do you see a future for it? And so proof of stake. So in proof of work, you're meant to, it, it has two components to it. One is your CapEx component, you know, something that you have to buy or have to, um, something that you have to buy to participate. And two is your OPEX component, something that you have to spend on a recurring basis in order to participate. Proof of stake was first conceived by, actually, I don't know who wrote the very first paper, but most of the work that has been adopted was really, is really coming out of the Ethereum research team. And so Ethereum was spurned into this because they believed that fundamentally proof of work one could not scale. Two, it created the wrong incentives. Three, it could be easily manipulated and gained. And four, the electricity waste was just, they didn't see that as beneficial. And that was very much a, you know, a rationale for them on why they wanted to go into proof of stake. And so they said, yeah. okay, instead of having that CapEx component be an ASIC, what if we transform that into the coin itself? So you have a node, of that we call them validator nodes. Um, and important to note that every single proof of stake coin has its own unique terminology. So it can be very confusing because it's a very nascent industry still. But in Ethereum, you have your validator node 
And what you do is you lock up a large chunk of your money. I think it's roughly 3,600, uh, sorry, 36S um, that you lock up. And that stays in your validator node for a lockup period. They haven't defined what that period it is, but for the sake of discussion, let's say that it's nine months. So for nine months, you cannot touch that money at all. And you will earn interest on it um, at the end of the year, only a very small amount, one, two, three percent, sometimes less. And your validator node is going to do all of the verification and signing of blocks. In fact, it's going to fulfill that mining portion, except instead of you know cracking, cracking um, hashes, instead you're just verifying and validating for the blockchain. And you're transforming that physical resource instead into a digital resource. And that has pros and cons. The pro being that, yes, you no longer consume lots of electricity. The con being that you've now separated your community and you've tied your coin to stakeholders alone. So this is one of the risky things for a new cryptocurrency. Think about average Joe. Average Joe doesn't want to spend um, his hard-earned fiat to participate in this new cryptocurrency community, especially if this is his first time hearing about crypto. I, I can't, I've never met right. anyone um, who wanted to spend, and that's the equivalent of $7,000 today. So I've never met anyone who wanted to spend $7,000 on a whim just to gamble, something that you know may not work out. And that money is held for a whole year, especially if you know you're you're you've got a house, you've got a family, you have other uses for that money. And the other um, con of this is how validator nodes work is that if you are a malicious actor, or if you drop off the network, or if you sign faulty blocks, there's there's a checklist of things you can't do. But basically, if you're not a good network actor, you will get your rewards slashed which means that that 32 Ethereum might get halved and it just burns. So you never recover it. You can never get it back. That can be scary to a lot of people. It creates the right incentives for your validator nodes to be these high profile investors that are very much, you know, willing to stake um, their money into Ethereum and use that to reinvest into the infrastructure. But it does take away from that grassroots community, and it does stop a lot of new participants. Ethereum is going to be in a very good place because they had that proof of work period. That got them the users. That allowed them to sort of get their user base, get the word out. People were talking. People get onboarded to a cryptocurrency coin through mining. And at some point, you have to make that transition period and so they're making that transition period because what they're wanting to build for in the current future is a world finance, uh, sorry, a world computer that every developer can use. And that really should be backed by some very large stakeholders that will then reinvest that money back into, you know, into the application ecosystem. So it's why I say each mining uh, coin is like a little biome. They're very unique and you can't compare them to other coins per se. That makes a lot of sense. On the topic of a decentralized world computer, what are all these pieces of these Web 3.0 projects eventually going to build once they're all put together? What does the future look like from your eyes? <laughs> I have very strong opinions on that. Um, I want to hear my biggest <laughs> My biggest frustration is everyone that's building for Web 3.0 right now, which is just fancy marketing jargon for a decentralized web. They're building on top of existing infrastructure that really does belong to just a few CDNs. So how our internet works today is there are a few data centers all around the world that act as content distribution networks, and they serve your files. They Anytime you, you know go to a web page, they're serving that content to you, um, and they specialize in this. And... The problem with the internet right now is it is heavily censored, and we've seen this before. If, if, you, if you are a malicious actor on the internet, you can have your site taken down. Um, Cloudflare has done this twice, I believe, in their history. They've done it for good reason, but they have taken entire sites offline. Um, nothing stops a CDN from doing that. So if the future is, you know, Web3 is about building this decentralized internet that belongs to the people, 
how can you do that when you're building on top of the existing internet that belongs to Google and Amazon and all of these CDMs? You simply can't. You're still playing on their turf. Uh, you know, a, web, a true Web 3.0 has to be built from the ground up, redo the entire networking protocol if we have to, but it really has to run on as many decentralized devices as possible. And it really does have to belong to the average user. It can't be controlled by any one party and no one should have the right to say what can and cannot be removed. Now that might be dangerous for sure, but even in a centralized internet today, we have, you know, more harm comes out of censorship than good. I mean, look at the case of China and a lot of the media that's censored uh, over in China. You know, there's nothing stopping that from happening in uh, Europe or in the US today, except for some flimsy laws. And all it takes is, you know, if people don't notice, how will we ever notice things are censored as well? Yeah, that's a great point. How do you know something's being censored until you see something uncensored for the first time and then you notice the difference? There's a whole generation coming up right now that's used to this political correctness and censorship, and they'll never know what that they're actually missing something in the first place. And I, I'm really excited about a decentralized world running on average consumer hardware. I think projects like Dfinity are going to be huge. And even outside the crypto space, there's a, a project called OpenStack, which is essentially Amazon Web Services that anyone can deploy themselves. And potentially running something like that on different Dfinity nodes or Ethereum 2.0 nodes, uh, it really could be the underlying hardware that gives us this brand new world that so many of us are really, really hoping for. No, I agree. I agree. There's everyone right now is is doing all of this research on how do we build this decentralized internet, and I think the there's a very ripe opportunity for someone to come in and stitch it all together in an easy to use platform. Because at the end of the day, how do you get a decentralized internet to take off? You have to ensure that it's no different to using Firefox or Chrome or Safari today. Um, the average user isn't going to care about their internet. They don't care about the technology sitting behind the, um, the screen. All they care about is, it, is it easy to use? And the existing projects today are not user-friendly. So someone with that UX background is going to be able to come in and really differentiate um, on the Web 3.0 side. Fascinating. You know, one of the one of the last questions we we want to really hit on is the Bitcoin having, and you've been through several, or I I think we're this is going to be the third one. So you've been through the first two. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So tell us a little bit, you know, about maybe some anecdotal stories about the first couple, and really how you think the market is going to react. Uh, near this next halving and kind of after it? Well, the first Bitcoin halving, that was in November. Oh, it was in November 28th, I want to say, in 2012. And the community was so small then, it didn't really make a major impact. Then the second time we had it, um, we actually had a bit of a price increase, a quite substantial one, actually. And that was really because, you know, there was more Bitcoin. Bitcoin was being talked about more for a start. Bitcoin was, you know, starting to be, people were starting to get FOMO and fear of missing out. And they were starting to think, oh man, I have to keep buying it. The price kept going up and up and up. Miners were also selling Bitcoin, which contributed a lot to the volatility on exchanges. It did have a big impact on the price. On the third one, we don't really know. So some people say that, for the last halving, um, it was already priced in, which means that our move from, you know, 3K to 12K was, it was priced in already. But for this one, we're not really sure. Most miners are starting to get squeezed out of the ecosystem, which means that there's not a lot of room for, there's no room for the home miner. There's very less room for the average Joe now to get into Bitcoin mining. And most of the mining is being done by these big enterprise farms that don't always look towards price and aren't really worried by the price. So then your, your halving price is really just 
um, up to the traders and the uh, investors. Um, I think we're going to see a price increase, personally. Um, not financial advice, but I think that's what we're going to see again, simply because um, more and more miners are going to sell off more coin buy, um, and invest more into mining infrastructure. And I think more people are bullish on Bitcoin now. It's being talked about everywhere. Um, you've got a lot more sentiment that's pushing Bitcoin as well compared to what it was um, a few years ago. But it will be interesting. That could all collapse as well if, you know, suddenly all the hardware manufacturers in China decide to shut up shop because of the coronavirus and uh, no more Bitcoin hardware is ever produced. Yeah. So we don't really know. It, it's it's not something we can really speculate uh, steadily on. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that's that's really great insight. We're definitely excited to see kind of how the traders and investors react once you know, you have, I think it's about 1800 Bitcoin a day that could potentially hit the market. Um, and now we're going to have about 900 Bitcoin a day after the May 12th, uh, 2020 halving. Uh, so that'll be very interesting to see. And, you know, just to wrap us up, Christy Lee, we, we got a couple questions that we like to ask every guest that comes on the show. Um, and the first one is, you know, you've been around for so long and you've had so many valuable interactions with, with so many brilliant people. And I'm really curious about one specific person and one specific impression that really affected you uh, for the better, whether personally or technologically. Ooh, I'm going to have to give a shout out to my previous boss, Kevin. I learned so much when he got into blockchain space, getting, getting to watch his journey and getting to watch the questions he asked as, you know, an enterprise um as someone who lived and breathed enterprise and represented it coming into the cryptocurrency and blockchain space that completely redefined how I thought about crypto and how I thought about blockchain and how I approach it today with my customers. Having that insight was invaluable and getting to be a part of his journey into crypto also was invaluable. So I think so far that has probably made the biggest impact. And for second place, it would be Samson Mao of Blockstream. His, his journey from, you know, working in the trenches in China to coming to the U.S. and building um, large-scale enterprise data centers, it's, it's impressive. Yeah, it amazes me just the amount of talent and brilliance that are leaving all these other spaces in the world to come here in crypto and blockchain. Whether it's Microsoft or Google or Goldman Sachs, they all see this as the future. And it really just solidifies more than anything else that we're in the right place. I agree. I agree. And the last question we have for you is, if this is the first podcast that someone getting into the space had heard, what would you want them to know? Don't jump into crypto mining first. Um, read a little bit about what Bitcoin is. And if you think that Bitcoin is a really great idea, which I hope you do, I'd start attending some of the conferences and events and think about diversifying just a little bit of your cash that you make every month into Bitcoin. I mean. Hell, we've got 15 million active users now or active participants or 15 mm. million can't be wrong. Yeah, no, it's so true. Yeah, that's exactly how I started. Just when I started learning about it, just taking, you know, 50 bucks every paycheck, just putting it in. Um, I didn't even know what I was doing. Like, you know, there's a strategy called dollar cost averaging that we talk a lot about here. And that's one of the things. So yeah, dollar cost averaging, guys. Uh, this is something you do not want to miss. And you heard it here first from Ms. Christy Lee Minahan, a Bitcoin miner since 2009. Christy Lee, thank you so much for joining us. And if people want to follow Christy Lee and get all updates, go ahead and tell us what your Twitter handle is one more time. It is at Oh God, a girl. Oh God, a girl. Tell me what inspired that, Christy Lee. Um, <laughs> the name is uh, actually from the gaming ecosystem. Um, so I needed a clean handle when I started tying my real name to my work and I had Oh Got A Girl lying around and it fit the three things I needed. Number one, it was under 10 characters because some websites still restrict the number of characters you can use for your handle. Number two, it was um, memorable and catchy. And number three, no one else was using it. So it was perfect. Brilliant. 
that's all the criteria that I needed for mine too. IRC restricted me to nine characters, so I got pizza mind. Oh man, <laughs> there you go. Love it. All right. Well, I hope that we you could uh, you could join us again one of these days, maybe near the having, and we'll we'll talk to you soon. Excited to keep tabs on all the progress that you guys are making. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Cheers. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.